our weekly excursion into the world of achievement. Uh, we are planning on bringing you very special guests here each week, and they will tell you about uh, their achievements and accomplishments and just share a whole lot of knowledge with this audience. And eventually we're gonna get to the point where we'll be a little bit more interactive and start accepting calls. Uh, we're coming to you live uh, from Minneapolis-St. Paul, otherwise known as the Twin Cities. A uh, couple of little tidbits about the Twin Cities, at least Minneapolis. Uh, there were Native Americans here uh, 12,000 years or so ago. Uh, it's very difficult. I think you cannot go six blocks uh, in Minneapolis without uh, coming across some lake. Uh, Minnesota itself is known as the land of 10,000 lakes. But actually, I think the actual count I heard was 11,842. And so it's just a great area. We had snow earlier this week, believe it or not. But today is just a bright, sunny, lovely day. And I'm happy today and excited to bring your special guest, uh, Dr. Chris Callahan. And Dr. Callahan is an emergency room doctor, and we're going to talk to him and explore a few areas about that and share some enlightenment on uh, what it's like to be an emergency room doctor. And we'll talk a little bit in general about the medical profession and some of the things that has been going on recently there. Uh, so uh, I'm going to give you Chris right now. Welcome, Chris. How Welcome, you Chris. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Lacey. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you for taking time out for us. Uh, I understand that uh, you're not in an office, you're not in a hospital or any medical facilities. Why don't you tell us where you are, Chris, and what are you doing? Well, I'm uh, actually down hunting turkeys in south central Nebraska and northern Kansas and um, looking, trying to find the best internet signal to be able to talk to you tonight. So, okay, well, we, we hope, yeah, we hope we got a quality signal and it doesn't uh, mess up too often, if at all. Uh, so, welcome. Uh, I'm glad to have you here tonight. Uh, so you're an ER doctor, correct? Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And, and what led to your decision, Chris, to become an ER doctor? What? Well, let, let's come at it this way. And I, I love the, I, I, I love the uh, poetic line: "The child is the father of the man." And you know, in, in today's age, I have to uh, adjust that a little bit and say, "The child is the father of the man and the woman." Uh, but uh, how did you, your childhood lead you eventually into this medical field doing the type of things that you're doing, Chris? Well, that's a good question. It was uh, probably relatively circuitous to get to the, you know, realization what I want to do. I, I was good at science and math and things like that in high school and college. And I was also like a home health aide. So took care of people. And in my first couple of years of college, I never, you know, never really thought about medicine, although Weirdly, MASH is one of my favorite shows, and I, I I hate to reference MASH in this, but really, you know, some of those shows had a little bit of an impact and on a young, impressionable kid. And I uh, went when in college, I started, you know, doing well and realizing that maybe this was going to be a career for me. And, and and I applied and I got in the University of Minnesota and and here we are. OK, great, great. Now, of all the different specialties in medicine that you could go into and, and include in general practice, I guess. What was it about the emergency room made you decide to go that route, Chris? I think you have to be like a, a jack of all trades, master of none, except for saving people's lives. Mm -hmm. And, and you, 
I, I went through numerous different specialties and subspecialties and did different types of uh, rotations and stuff in different different ones. And you know, I you know, medical specialties sound like a great idea, cardiology, GI, but I liked anesthesia, but I like taking care of kids. And I realized that there's one job out there where I get to do all of that. And that's okay. being an emergency medicine physician. And it's kind of how it happened. It just, it was organic. It was the right fit for me. Okay. And we were talking earlier and uh, I mentioned to you that uh, in college, I worked every weekend at a hospital Actually, it was called Metropolitan Medical Center at the time. And you mentioned that you work just about every weekend also. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I guess where I'm going there, Chris, is that uh, what type of impact does that have on your family life? I'm assuming you miss yeah. some special occasions and things like that. And and you might even have to go out and buy some diamonds or some flowers <laughs> or something to make up to, to the wife or something every once in a while. Yeah, well. What, what type it's, of impact does it have on uh, on your family life? Well, it, it you know it has a big impact, but there, uh, Lacey, there are a lot of people that have it even worse than I do when it comes to working weekends and holidays, and that's usually my nursing staff who Absolutely. work longer shifts than I, and they work more weekends, and they're the ones that I can't believe can can pull it off when they they don't have the same resources that I do and have little kids and work. 12 hours overnight and take care of the kid all day and then go back to work again. So I just kind of, it's, it's, it's easier for me than it is for a lot of people. That's a very good answer because I've been always taught when you think you're in a bad situation, look around you and you can always see someone else with bigger challenges and bigger issues. So I really appreciate that response. Uh, so uh, we try to enlighten our audience uh, Chris, when we on, on this show and some fundamental basic type things like, uh, and this is what I want to ask you. I want to give our audience some information on what should they do pending uh, get getting to the emergency room if, they, if that's a medical condition uh, that they're experiencing. What are the type of things should they be, can they do uh, before, let's say before the ambulance come? Uh, to take them to the ER, and let's talk about things like let's let's. I'm gonna give you an example of each one, yeah. and you you address it. How about that? Perfect. Let's suppose they're dealing with a family member or a friend who has passed out. What what would you suggest they do while they're waiting on the ambulance to come and the EMTs to come? Uh, certainly, um, you know, there's you know bystander CPR that's probably right. important. Right. It all right. depends. I mean, that really relies upon the that particular bystander. No being able to palpate for a pulse and things like that, which is it, we preach it, but it's really difficult because yeah. most people who pass out, they pass out and it's relatively benign. Right. It's picking out the non-benign ones. And that's the difficult part with people who pass out. So it's, it's a, it's a difficult question to, to discuss because everybody has a little different situation, but if, if people have a lot of symptoms before, if you're lightheaded, dizzy, nauseated, I always say, you know, lay down, let elevate your feet, Make sure you're drinking water. Try to do something so that you don't pass out is right, prevent right. that from happening. But then yeah. there's the ones that are cardiac in origin. And that's, you know, those people, it's, 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 it can be difficult to delineate who are the sick ones and who are not. And I would say that's where we need our EMS colleagues to be able to help us with that and try to free the area of obstruction, make sure that they're not choking on something, make sure they're not having a seizure, make, you know, just those kinds of things and, and, and just try to, to see where it goes. Most people recover pretty uneventfully. 
yeah. And you know what, Chris? I think I'm going to move away from that topic anyway because I don't want you to try to <laughs> give it medical. What you're that's saying to be interpreted right. as medical advice uh, 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 on the phone here. Now, let, let's talk about healthcare a little in general. Yeah. Uh, a couple of challenges that we've had for the past few decades have been just everyone having access to healthcare yeah. and just the overall cost of healthcare. When you and your uh, medical associate sit around and talk about access to healthcare, which I assume mm -hmm. you do every once in a while, uh, what are the type of things that you that comes up that we could do to improve access to healthcare for everyone? If if there's anything, how would you uh, approach that particular? If you had it, were in control of coming up with a solution, boy, that's a that's a difficult one because yeah. we. You know, everybody, it, 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 this United States is so diverse that dealing with healthcare delivery in, you know, relative, even in towns, relative to counties, to state level, to regions, to, to the whole country in general. I mean, access, you know, we can, it's clearly shown that access to primary care helps people getting regular blood check, blood pressure checks, blood sugar checks, those kinds of things you know, other, you know, primary care type appointments. And a lot of those things can actually be facilitated through nursing and doesn't necessarily need to be facilitated through physicians or even mid-level practitioners, such as nurse practitioners or PAs. And if we can have more of a more emphasis on having some of those things checked where you don't have to have the highest paid person take a look at it, I think we could probably expand a good solid percent of, of, access to basic things that right, need to be right. triaged to the next level. Okay, I understand that. So now, uh, where are you currently uh, uh, working in the ER at, Chris? Is there one location or more than one location now, you're currently working at? I do, I work at numerous locations, small, relatively smaller EDs. I've worked in larger ones, suburban, I've moonlighted in Wisconsin, Iowa, Minnesota. But I primarily now just professionally moonlight. I just kind of move around from one facility to the other. If they require staffing help, it kind of it suits my family life better. Being able to be pick my own schedule and things like that. Okay, good. Uh, so, do you know how far in advance do you know where you're going to be working at? It all depends upon which facility or or uh, uh, hospital based system that I work at but usually several months which is nice i can plan pretty well for that so okay and i'm assuming most of your practice has been in the minnesota twin city area yeah, primarily yep i worked at several and then in in several big you know healthcare delivery uh uh institutions if you will within minnesota and the twin cities okay and for how long have you been doing that chris uh in the twin cities practicing I mean, 2005 essentially okay. when i oh, finished my years. training so okay okay good now uh over the what have changes have you seen uh in er environment over the last 15 years since you've been practicing as far as the type of people coming in or any other type of uh, items that stick out in your mind as far as changes over the past 15 years since you've been working in er Boy, that's a tough question because it's the the delivery of emergency medicine to patients in the suburban, 
versus the rural facilities, it, it can be night and day. And then once again, we add COVID to this. And in one system I worked at, we, we, were, we were overwhelmed with COVID patients. And that, that just changes you know, our most recent perspective. But I, I would say that certainly we, with COVID in particular, mm-hmm. we see patients, we see the COVID patients that can be very sick. And weirdly, a lot of our volumes have gone down, but our acuity has gone up because people don't come in with a lot of stuff that seems more routine. But then the back end of that is a lot of our folks who have chronic medical conditions don't go to their clinics, so they don't come in with stuff early on. So they present with their chronic medical problems later during the course of the illness where they're often quite a bit sicker. So right, it's right. kind of a catch-22. So what you expect, as the number of COVID cases coming into the ER goes down, go down, the number of other cases will go up. And, and, and implied in that is kind of a, uh, an implication that during the COVID crisis, a lot of people who would normally uh, be ER patients, maybe, maybe they weren't coming into the ER. Yeah. Is it? yeah. Without a doubt, that's true. Without We've a doubt, seen, yeah. Without a doubt. and but But also what we saw less was think about the hospital systems closing down their mm-hmm. outpatient practice, their procedure. Oh, yeah. So, so you don't see those patients that have complications because people aren't getting their knee scoped and, you know, as an outpatient, which means, you know, a certain percentage are going to have complications from it. So they're not going to be presenting the ED with complications from it. So that has the big downstream effects within the healthcare systems, believe it or not, that sounds funny, but it is really that just, and our trend has shown that, our ED volumes have gone down with COVID, not up when it, they're blips. And that's, you know, the whole problem with it. We try to control the blips where, you know, we get a big increase in COVID cases and we don't want to overwhelm the system. But the day-to-day uh, repercussions of it has been actually trending down ED volumes. Well, the, and, and that kind of makes sense in a way. So, the profession you're in and working in the ER, I'm assuming that's a very stressful environment that you see all types of patients coming in there that you have to have a certain fortitude uh, to deal with it. Uh, tell me about uh, the stress, not necessarily on you, Chris, but the people working around you, uh, how about how stressful the environment is and how do you, what type of uh, methods do you use to deal with the pressure and the stress that's, uh, built into your job. Well, Lacey, everybody, everybody has a different level of stress that they work at. Everybody, it's the same stress level for everybody, whatever job they're doing. So that's a a CPA April 15th. Right. I mean, in every, so, you know, I always, people ask me this question a lot and I'm like, well, would you rather have your ER doc be the guy that rolls into the room and you can't even really tell if he's, you know, breathing, you put a mirror under his nose and, or, or would you, you know, would you rather have him be a stressed out looking person? You know, that, that changes your judgment and your ability to be objective. So I just, you, you know, I think you do it long enough. You just kind of, the stress is the stress. And yes, there are times that are busy, but that, that everybody's busy and you, you try to do the best job that you possibly can. Okay. And this might be a tough one here, Chris. So I'm warning you ahead of time, but uh, <laughs> if you had to break down the type of uh, medical uh, treatment needed in the ER from 
the highest top highest three types of things that comes into the ER. Uh, mm-hmm. What w- what would you say uh, the top three reasons people end up in the emergency room based on your experience? Chest pain, abdominal pain, and injuries okay. are the ma- most common. Okay. Uh, and do you have any, let's, let's suppose someone come into the ER and their suspicion that something maybe even criminal might have caused them to end up in the ER. Do you have any type of legal, moral, or medical obligation to follow up on that? Great question. And the being a mandated reporter, we have to report, you know, abuse, child abuse, those kinds of things are they're, you know, without I have no remorse at all if I break mm-hmm. any sort of code with somebody, if there's if there's you know, accident circumstances where somebody's life is a danger or there's, I think somebody's being abused or those kinds of things. Although like domestic abuse, we have a, a person who's being domestically abused has to actually give consent to have it reported to the police. Unless they're a vulnerable or a child, we don't report them. But our philosophy in the ED is that the ED is a sanctuary. And I am not a jailer. I am not a police officer. I'm a physician. And people can come to me with their issues. And, I, and if they're illegal or they've done something, it's not my responsibility to, to, to use that against. And my responsibility is for, to treat them, especially that the biggest case is overdoses. You know, they may have heroin or something like that on them, but they can always come in and see me if they have an overdose. And I'm never going to call the police on them because that's not my responsibility. My responsibility is to my patient, not to be their jailer or their police officer. Right. Now, do you ever, and I, I would assume it'd be rare, have a situation where you're saying, I'm not totally prepared for this, uh, or this is a this is a challenge. Uh, let's let's put it that way. Yes. Uh yes. And and what 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 type of things present the challenges uh to an ER doctor they're, in your opinion? They're almost entirely psychosocial issues, issues that are you know, social work on a, on a, on steroids where mm. there there's a niche where we don't have a pathway that we can use. We don't have, you know, for instance, a, a family gets in a car accident and they they're, they're on the freeway and they're from Chicago or New York and they, you know, they're, they're going cross country and they may not have money or their credit cards may be in their car, their car's getting towed. What do we do for those people? Right, right. You know, where's the compassion part of this? We have to, you know, we have to find a place for them because they, they're, you know, those kinds of things can be very complex because there's, there's not a, there, that's a niche that right. that's a, that's pay. There's, there are other ish, other comparisons, often psychiatric that where we don't have availability of beds, specifically state hospital beds or capabilities of getting people, what we call put on. Um, you know, committed things like that, where we just don't have the resources available. And these people end up in the ER a lot because they, that this is where things end up. Wow. So now you mentioned earlier that you work in a lot of cases for some of the smaller ERs, is mm-hmm. it, I recall it correctly. Yep. And I'm assuming that there are times when you get patients that has to, you have to send them somewhere else. And mm-hmm. in that case, do you have, in most cases, do you have helicopters, helipads that you use, or is it 
normally normal ambulance transport. Uh, how often do you make use of helicopters and things to transport? Well, all of the above. Um, mm -hmm. Certainly, helicopter transport is a big deal because they're critical care teams, and we have a critical patient, and we can expedite them to you know a facility of a large referral facility. But then again, you you're, you deal with the issues of weather and things like that where you can't get a helicopter in. Then you have to deal with lo often local EMS. And there's a wide range in the skill set for a lot of local EMS. There's first responders who may have you know basic life support all the way to paramedics who are 20-year paramedics that know how to run all critical care services. And you often don't know what you have available to you at any one time. So it can be a little bit challenging. These are issues, Lisa, that they deal with in the Twin Cities as well that I've right, dealt with. Right. So mm -hmm. it's all, it's, yes, I, I helicopter transportation is actually kind of dangerous. So I try to limit helicopter transportation as much as I can. And I have many friends who are flight nurses, flight paramedics. I've flown many times in a helicopter as a resident. So I, I understand those limitations as well. And trying to not overuse those services because they're very costly as okay. well in most uh on most nights i'm assuming you're working uh days or whatever are, are there more than one er uh available you have another doctor working with you at least one i'm assuming or maybe not uh, no one yes I, we, we we have to have one right so right right um, Yes, it all depends upon the, the the ED volume of the facility. Some facilities, you know, I've worked at places where we've had four or five ED docs at one time. So, whoops. Hello? You're I'm sorry. That, yeah. yeah, my battery's dying and I don't okay, have Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm helping get you off of here then. <laughs> <laughs> my apologies. No, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, so it's all, all depend upon ED volume and and availability of services, so. Okay, and just a few uh, wrap up questions here for you, Chris. Uh, how does an emergency room judge how well it's doing, how well it's serving the public? Uh, sure. Is there any metrics or things that emergency rooms use or surveys or anything to determine the quality of work you're yeah. doing? There, uh, that's a great question because it's pretty hard. First of all, it's pretty hard to determine when a person needs emergency medical services, what do they do? How there, there's not a lot of market pressures on coming to emergency department, right? There's right, you right, need right. to have emergency medical services. You can't, you can't, you know, pick the pick. one that may have the cheapest or may have the best staff. You go to the one that's closest. So it's hard to judge a lot of these things. We have something called Prescani scores, which is a certain a company that judges us. The scores are not they're it's difficult to determine, you know, usually it's based on patient satisfaction, but that's not the best metric because right. sometimes, you know, giving patients everything they need isn't the, or everything they want isn't the best thing for the patient. And they mm -hmm. perceive that as being a failure on our part when we're actually providing good medicine, which honestly, in my years, I've learned is a mm -hmm. communication issue. And if I can explain it to them why I'm doing something that they disagree with, you know, the scores tend to go up. There's also Medicare and numerous other, you know, governmental entities that judge hospitals and stuff based upon different scores, but they're usually based upon like size facilities and issues like that. 
and it, it becomes very nuanced. And, right. and when you, when you deal with like critical access hospitals, very small hospitals in small towns that you're really the only place to go. So it's hard to, to open up another emergency department across the street and say, you're going to provide better right, services. Right, 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 right. Uh, so now not only are you dealing with your own stress and strain and stress and strain of the staff, uh, I'm assuming that family members and things coming in and they are under a lot of pressure and they have grief and concern and worry. Uh, how big of an issue is that dealing with the people who accompany the people to the medical, uh, to the emergency room? That's it. And COVID has been even quite a bit worse because we haven't had a lot of visitors that can come back. Right. Um, so ordinarily you have somebody that comes in and that you maybe have two or three family members that accompany them. You can often get a better story, get filled with what's going on in, in COVID we, for the, quite a while, we had no visitors. So you would have this history piece missing. So we would try to do it on the phone. And then that requires often numerous phone calls and family conferences. And we're, we're talking for like sick patients or elderly nursing home kind of issues. It can be very complicated. Um, but you try to do the best you can. And I, you know, try to try to keep everybody's informed as I possibly can of what, what we're going to do next or what are our treatment goals? That's a very important question because everybody seems to have a different idea on what a treatment goal is. And if you can determine what those treatment goals are, then we can understand a way, a good plan for the patient and the family. Okay. So wrapping up here, let's suppose that we have some people out in the audience who's thinking, hey, I want to become a doctor. Mm -hmm. Give them some type of idea of the studies and the residence work that you had to go through and complete to become an ER doctor, Chris. Well, it's obviously graduating from high school mm -hmm. and then uh, a four-year degree, which is rigorous with, you know, upper-level biology courses, new, you know, several years of chemistry, physics, calculus, and then you, you know, take us a, a test called the MCAT, which is essentially its function is to exclude you as a candidate, not include you as a candidate. And then uh, med school, which is four years. So you got four years of college plus give or take four years of med school and then training residency training for emergency medicine is three or four years, depending upon the specialty neurosurgery can be seven or eight years. Everybody's a little bit different. So you essentially need to, you can't look at this as some type of long-term goal. Going into medicine, you have to be quite mindful and live for the day and realize it because if you look that you realize you're sacrificing your entire 20s for your goal, mm -hmm. then you're probably not going to want to do it because you sit by and watch all your friends have families and buy houses and buy cars and and I'm sitting there donating plasma twice a week because I'm so poor. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as you look towards the future, what are some of the challenges and uh, trends you see in the ER area, Chris, and then we're going to let you get back to your deer. Turkeys. Turkeys. Yeah, you're right. Take it. I'm sorry. Yeah, 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 <laughs> um, yeah. The biggest, the biggest problem with emergency medicine right now is a lot of places have significant overcrowding where patients wait for hours, even days to get a room or be transferred. That's in, in specifically our most vulnerable our psychiatric patients who, it, it, there's a whole nother topic conversation, Lacey, just to talk about psychiatric delivery of emergency medicine services. And every place you, we, we, I know of, 
patients can wait days or weeks even to get in a psychiatric facility and they're stuck in a small room and they're, they're not getting true psychiatric care because that's not available to them. I mean, it's worse than a prison cell for them. Mm-hmm. And, and then they get transferred to a, you know, finally, ultimately an inpatient psychiatric facility or something like that. And that's when they get the treatment they need, but we just can't provide them. I'm not a psychiatrist, so I, I can't provide them that level of psychiatry. Nobody can. And, and they can, you know, anybody put in that situation could get violent or angry or mad and staff assaults are way up. And because the patients we have, especially now in COVID, we have a lot of people who are substance abusers out there that are, that it's coming to a surface. People are stressed and they're, and when they're stressed, they, they come to the ED and often they're mad or angry and you try to diffuse a situation and sometimes it doesn't work. And like I said, staff assaults are, are, is, is a big thing in my job and worrying about my staff safety is really a big part of it. And we can't often plan for who's going to be violent and who's not going to be violent. Wow. Uh, you've mentioned COVID several times as far as it, its impact on the ER. Maybe that'll be another uh, <laughs> area that we'll talk about in another interview once we've uh, gotten some way back to near normal, uh, because I, I, I've heard you mention that. And I think a lot of people, and you've mentioned areas that a lot of people have thought about, uh, to be honest with you. So we might want to come back and talk about that a little bit. Uh, okay. So is there any mess? I'm gonna let you get back to your turkeys. Don't, don't, don't shoot it. <laughs> I deer. hope I get one. <laughs> don't shoot it at deer. It's not deer season. No, that's not uh, the right time for that. Uh, but, uh, is there any message, uh, that you as, uh, representative of the ER want to leave to either pass uh, people in that's come to the emergency room or people out there in general that you'd like for them to know about uh, the environment that you and your uh, excellent staff work in as far as the ER is concerned? Well, first of all, we're here for them. We're, we're here to serve them. Um, and that's something that we all maybe some of us learn the hard way. We go into medicine thinking it's going to be one way, but it's really the other way. And I'm at, you know, I'm here to serve them, but I'm also there to be their physician. So you can't be everybody's best friend all the time as well. And when we're busy, just have patience. We will get to you. If you're super sick, we'll bring you back quicker. Certainly call if you have any problems or concerns. It's all about communication, Lacey. It's in our all of our lives, regardless. Being able to effectively communicate with people and and have, like I said, those treatment goals is so important. And and you know, why are you here? What is what does that can do for you today? Is what I like to ask. Or what brings you in today? And try to get to the the core of it. And going forward, that I think those things remain the same. We've perhaps we're maybe streamlined a lot of services or things because. You know, we're dealing with an impending baby boomer crash as well. They're all getting to an age where they're going to need a lot of emergency medical services. And I don't know if we're quite ready for that yet, but maybe, you know, we, you know, necessity is a mother of invention, right? Right, right. I'm assuming that as you look at the baby boomers and look down the road, that that within your industry, Mm -hmm. they're realizing that that's something they're going to have to prepare for. And there are some organized efforts to be prepared for that. Am I correct in that? Boy, I, I wish that sometimes the leadership within within medicine was that proactive. It's often more reactive than proactive. 
And, you know, weirdly, we're in emergency medicine right now, we're looking at a physician surplus in 10 years. We're looking at a surplus of emergency medicine physicians. And in my particular field, there's a a big reason for that, weirdly, is because of the proliferation of mid-level practitioners who are working more of our shifts. And, you know, they don't often have the same exact training we do. And I'm not saying that they're not good at their jobs. They're fantastic, but they have a different type of training than we do. So there's, and, and you see this in a lot of medicine where, anesthesia, even surgery, things like that, where there's services provided by people that don't have the same level of training. And it, there's good, there's pluses and minuses. Perhaps maybe that will help fill some of our holes that we have. I, according to the, the, you know, sort of certifying bodies within my specialty, like I said, they, they're looking at a surplus. I'm not entirely sure that's going to happen. I still think right, that right, right. there's, it's, we will we'll be able to 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 retool for those kinds of contingencies. I'm not worried about it personally. Okay. Well, Chris, uh, once again, I'd like to thank you for taking out time from your hunting trip uh, to spend a few minutes with us here on Bright yeah. Lights this evening. Uh, I'd like to thank you and your staff and everyone else associated with the ER and first responders for the great jobs you've done for all of us, and especially me in a lot of cases. I do you you mentioned <laughs> the weight <laughs> that, that was probably that's that was my only complaint sometime but i really couldn't complain about that because people get uh, did a great job in taking care of me or my family or whoever i brought in so i really that's appreciate that now chris there's a rumor spreading uh that you've killed at least one turkey i have i i shot one already and and my buddy todd and i both got one you can shoot two in kansas so we weren't, we weren't able to get a second one. So now we're in Nebraska, we can shoot three more. So that, that just started, we're just starting here. So hopefully, uh, you know, if, uh, the, all the, uh, stars align, you know, we'll get a one or two up here. It's they're they're surprisingly, you know, people look at them on the highways and they see them in people's yards. Those are kind of city turkeys. They're a little different than the <laughs> right, ones that right. live out here. They're, okay. they're pretty wily creatures. They have everything out there is trying to eat them. So they're, they can, they can be pretty difficult to hunt. Yeah. And, and I should have warned uh, my <laughs> vegans out in the audience and young <laughs> children before I started talking about <laughs> Turkish. Yeah. So I apologize to them for that, but here's the thing I'm going to end it with this, Chris, if you come back with more than one Turkey, uh, <laughs> you and I are going to sit down and have a smoked Turkey burger somewhere. Uh, when I you like get it. Back here. So, okay. Really appreciate great. that. And once again, thanks for taking time out and go out and get some turkeys for us so we can sit down (laughs) and have a turkey burger when you get back. So I appreciate that and appreciate all you've been doing for us and continue to do for us in the emergency rooms. So thank you very much for being here and being my guest this evening. Thanks. Have a great night. Thanks for the time. You have a great night. Okay. Bye-bye.